Amen. And man, if you went to church in the 90s, there's some good memories there, right? Gosh, I'm so glad to be with you. So glad you're joining us. Uh, if you'll find your way in your Bible to James chapter 2, I think we're going to be in verse 14. That's where we're going to start today. I have been so enjoying studying the book of James. Have you all enjoyed it at all? And like, are you reading it on your own? Like, that, I just, I have so much affection for James. I will warn you, though, we've gotten through the easy part. He's about to get a lot more aggressive in all the stuff that he says, so buckle up. Uh, we'll get through it together. We'll talk about all of it. Today, I want to talk about what is probably the most discussed verse in the entire letter of James, okay? And I'm going to try to do my best to do it some justice today. Um, let me start with a question to frame this. Have you ever been so close to something that you couldn't understand it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, have you ever like had something that you've thought about so much and you've been so focused on that you've actually grown like more confused because you've thought so much about it? There's a word for this. The word is overthinking. Have you heard this word? Are there any overthinkers listening in today? Um, you know, they're all like thinking right now, should I raise my hand? I don't know. Like, would that bother the people around me? Is that what he wants? Do I even want to raise my hand? I, because we're overthinkers. Now, some of us do that more than others, but I think we all have this capacity to overthink, and it comes from this amazing gift that God has given us for focus, for mental focus, and we can take our minds and focus it on an issue and figure something out that is very complex. That's the good side of it. The bad side of it is sometimes we get trapped in our thoughts. Sometimes we get trapped in kind of ways of thinking that are not helpful, but we can't step back and see that. I think we do this with our faith. I think we do this with our faith quite a bit. Sometimes we can overthink our faith in Jesus. We've all done it. Um, I, I do it like this sometimes. Have you ever had a conversation like this where I'll be like, God, would you please, just uh, on this issue or uh, just in life in general, would you reveal to me your will? Lord, just show me the steps that I need to take so that I make the right decision, so that I am perfectly aligned with your will. I want to be in the center of your will for me, God. And sometimes I think God responds like, you know, well, you know, I gave you a whole book. Uh, you know, just do some of the stuff in there. I don't know. Lo love somebody? Just, just, can you love somebody? Just do that. That's my will. And I'm like, no, Lord, I, like, I'm, I'm just going to wait on you. Show me your good and perfect will. And I think he must shake his head at us because we are overthinking sometimes what it is that he's asked us to do. Am I the only one who's had that conversation with God? Okay, a few of you are agreeing. Um, this letter, the letter of James, is a primer on how to stop overthinking your faith and start living it. I think that's kind of what he's giving us as a gift. We're going to dive back into chapter 2 today, and we're going to come to this part of the letter that is like hotly debated and talked about by, uh, like in theological circles, and it has been for, for hundreds of years. Uh, with all due respect to all the great theologians who I respect so much who have come before me and have labored over this section of Scripture, what I want to suggest to us this morning is I think this is a passage that theologians tend to overthink. 
I think it's just we get caught in our head on this. I think James is saying something really simple, and I think it's really quite beautiful and quite hopeful, but sometimes we overanalyze it and we get overly theological, and I want us to, to today just step back and see it for what it is. So let me pray over us, and then we will dive in. Lord, we, we trust this, that you have given us our minds as a gift, Lord. We receive that. And we also acknowledge and confess that sometimes our minds can be our enemy. So we ask today just that you would help us, help our thoughts to serve us, not trap us, and give us freedom to understand and not overthink what you ask. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing I want us to keep, us in, mind, uh, keep in mind before we dive into this uh, James is writing to believers. We said that the first week, we need to keep that in mind throughout the entire thing. He assumes that as he is writing. That's why he calls them throughout the entire letter brothers, because he sees them that way. And I don't think James thought this way at all, but if we were to bring him up here and say, hey, are these people that you're writing to, are they all going to go to heaven? I think James would say, well, that's kind of a weird thing to ask, but sure, yeah, they're all probably going to go to heaven. Uh, but remember, he's not like us. He is Jewish in background. He's not a Protestant American evangelical, which is kind of what most of us are. And so I, I, he's not thinking the way that we think. He's not obsessed with heaven. Jewish thinkers were far more concerned with living on earth as God's people than they were about getting to heaven after you die. That was their orientation. And we need to remember that because he is going to say some things today. And because of our bias as Protestant American evangelicals, our tendency is going to be to take what he says and apply it to the question of whether or not we get into heaven. And that's not inherently wrong. There's some stuff we can learn from that. But we have to acknowledge that is not the question that he's talking about. That's not the focus of what he's talking about. He is wrestling with this question throughout the letter. How, what does it mean to live as the servants of God on earth? That is his focus in this letter, okay? And in the with that question as the backdrop, here is something that he says is a possible answer. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's pause right there. Let's not overthink this. Let's take a step back. A couple of simple observations will help us here. First, he is contrasting broken faith, or he calls it dead faith, with healthy faith. And so we have to realize that, that in this conversation, he is not contrasting believers with unbelievers. That's not what he's talking about. He is, this is a conversation about people who have healthy faith and people who have unhealthy faith. And what confuses us in this passage is he uses the word saved. And he asks, can unhealthy faith save us? But we have to acknowledge our bias, right? As Protestant American evangelicals, when we use that word save, almost every instance we would use that word, we are referring to somebody getting out of hell and into heaven. That's what we use that word to refer to. James, 
not a Protestant American evangelical. He doesn't even speak English, so he didn't even write the word saved. He wrote a Greek word here, sozo, and we translated it as saved, which is a pretty good translation, but kind of the connotation behind this word is bigger than just out of hell into heaven. The connotation of this word is restored. And so as an American evangelical, I read that, and you can read it this way, can faith without works get you out of hell? And many have, and that has led to this intense theological debate about the true nature of saving faith, and we just kind of overthink that to death. But the Jewish believers who received this letter in 40 AD would have been oriented in, in the same way James was. And so they would have read this question more like this, can faith without works restore you? Isn't that a very different sort of question? When you read it that way, it's what we call a rhetorical question, meaning it's not one that you actually want to answer because the answer is so obvious. Of course it can't. Like it's silly to think that this idea of just saying verbally, I believe in God, but do it, having it not in any way affect your life, that that would somehow restore you to what God created you to be. Well, that's just silly. It doesn't even warrant an answer because of course not. Verbal consent isn't faith. That's really what he's saying here. And of course it isn't. Let me give you an example. We all believe this. Verbal consent is not faith. If somebody said to you, hey, I really just, I love poor people. I care about poverty. I just, I care so much about the poor. And also, I just robbed a homeless guy. I took his last 10 bucks. Can I buy a coffee? You would be right to question whether or not the first statement they said was actually true, right? You might look at them and say, I know you think you care about poor people, but your care for poor people seems to be kind of dead because of your actions related to poor people. Now, he uses that phrase dead, that, that faith is dead. Remember what Susie taught a few weeks ago about the way Jewish thinkers thought about death. Death was not just like this destination, right? Like you're dead, it's over, that's the end. But death was a trajectory in Jewish thought. And so when James says faith without works is dead, he's not saying it's over, there's no chance, you're bound for hell, that's it. What he's saying is that your faith in that state is lifeless. It doesn't have life in it. And so instead of claiming to have faith and doing nothing about it, you should do something about it. That's what he's getting at. Let me tell you a phrase that I read in, in a commentary, and I just thought there was something about it. It unlocked something for me in this whole passage. This is the phrase. Grace isn't opposed to effort, just earning. Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace does not mean, uh, well, I didn't try. Grace is just opposed to earning. Grace means unearned favor. It means we didn't do anything to deserve it. It was like just given to us because the God of the universe loves us so deeply. He says, this is the gift of my grace. You can be restored. But sometimes we overthink that. Expending effort to try to honor God, to try to love God, that doesn't mean we don't believe in grace and it doesn't mean we haven't received grace. It just means that you're seeking to allow that grace that God has given you to affect you in some way. It doesn't mean we've earned God's love. It just means that our faith is alive. It's not dead. That's what James is talking about. 
Now, he wants to hammer this point home, and so he's going to say a few more words about it. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God's one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You want to be shown, you foolish person, I told you, a little aggressive, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called friend of God. Now, I'm going to come back to some other things here, but I just wanted to make a quick observation that stands out to me. Um, What James is saying is, demons are monotheist. I didn't know. Demons are monotheists. They all believe in God. They believe in Jesus. Like they, demons would say, yes, Jesus, he is the only son of God. That he, there is, uh, salvation is only found in him. No one else. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than Jesus. Demons believe that. And yet, they're demons, right? That is the point. They're demons. They have wholly rejected God, and they are actively working against him. So if we define faith as knowing what is true, James is saying, well, that that seems, that's a useless definition because that would include the demonic world who knows exactly what is true. Maybe a deeper question is not just like, is it like knowing what's true faith? But maybe a deeper question is, why would we want faith like that? Why would we want a faith where like we know what is true and it never affects us. Like, why would we want that? Either God is real. Either, like, the, the, like behind our reality is this other reality, and there's this God that created everything, and he actually exists, and he actually knows your name, and he loves you so deeply that he stepped into this earth. He stepped out of his realm of heaven and into this earth, into the muck and the mud of this earth, and he loved you enough to die for you because he wanted so desperately to have you in his life. Either that is true and it is worth giving your life to, or it's not. And they're like, we should all go find something else to do. There should not be an in-between world here where we're like, yeah, I believe it, but it doesn't really change me much. Why would we even want that? That sort of faith, uh, belief, but not uh, any effect on us, that's demonic faith, literally, is what he's saying here. And he gives us the example of Abraham Uh, He says he believed God. It it changed everything for him. He was even willing to lay down his son for that, which is a challenging story. But I think just the simplicity of what James is saying here is what we believe is true affects us. It changes how we live, and that's what we see with Abraham. He was acting as if God was true, okay? He goes on to wrap up this section of Scripture with another illustration I think is even more helpful. Verse 24 He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, again, he's using a word that's going to trip us up as American evangelicals. But in this case, you can't explain it away. He uses the word justified. The Greek word for justified, it just means to declare righteous. 
or to be in right relationship with God. And if you've read any of the rest of the Bible, like your red lights are going off. Like, doesn't that contradict what like Paul says? Paul says in Romans 4, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Like, are Paul and James here disagreeing about our works justifying us? Like, this is the hallmark of Protestant evangelical theology, is this equation. Faith plus nothing equals justification. Or faith plus nothing equals salvation. That we are right before God because of faith, because of his grace, plus nothing else. I think we need to not overthink this, though. Let me come at it from a different direction. I think James is asking this question. Is it even possible to have faith in God that changes nothing about you? No, it is not. And I don't have time to go through the entire book of Romans, but I promise you this, despite what Paul says about grace in there, Paul would agree, it is impossible to have real faith in God that changes nothing about you. It is an impossibility. This is uh, what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon was saying when he said, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Now that does not mean that the change in our life is what saves us. It does not. It is the grace of God that saves us. But what it does mean is that when there is real faith, there will always be a change. That's the nature of it. So James isn't throwing out grace and saying, no, we're defined by what we do with God. He's saying, no, 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 that our identity as saved, our identity as chosen by God, that will have an effect on what we do. And he's not, notice he doesn't say like you need to do this many works, or he certainly doesn't say like there's like a scale and your good works need to outweigh your bad works. He's not talking about that. He is simply showing us that real faith affects a person. And to hammer that home, he uses this great example. He talks about Rahab. Rahab was a non-Jewish prostitute uh, who helped the people of God in the Old Testament. And this is what we know about Rahab. We don't know a lot, but uh, we would uh, suppose, based on what we know, that Rahab was probably wrong on a long list of theological points, right? I don't know all about what you believe, but I promise you this, that probably your framework or your worldview about God is more biblical and more accurate than Rahab's, right? So you beat her out on that. But this is also true. She probably struggled with a whole host of sins that you've never struggled with, right? So if there was a moral scale, scale, there's not a moral scale, but if there was a moral scale, you would be a little bit ahead of her probably on the moral scale. Yet she had some faith. She had a little bit of faith, and we know that because we see the effect that it had on her. What little faith she had, she put into action. And James is simply saying, can we just be like that? Can the little bit of faith that we have, just can we put it into action? And I love that he picks her as an example, because I think, it, like, whereas Abraham, he's sacrificing his son, like, that's an intimidating story. Like, Rahab, it, he's just lowering the bar for us a little bit to say, listen, if this Gentile prostitute who believed all the wrong things and did all the wrong things, but had a little bit of faith and it changed her, then your faith can and should change you. He closes with a metaphor um, I wasn't going to talk about it. I just like it so much. He, he talks about how our faith animates our actions in the same way our soul animates our body. Think about this. Without the soul, our body becomes something you would not want to keep around. 
Um, that's why we don't. We, we bury dead people. He says the same thing is true of our faith. When it doesn't change us, it becomes the sort of thing you don't want to keep around. It's not valuable. It's, it's kind of, ugh. And if we're not willing to overthink that or over-theologize that, I, guys, I think this is something that is quite beautiful, that is hopeful, that our faith does have that effect on us. Let me maybe just summarize a few things that might be anchors as you come to this passage. I think it's a good passage to meditate on. This could maybe guide some of your thoughts. First of all, let's just say this. Faith is not a feeling we have about God, nor is it a list of facts that we believe. Faith is the thing that informs how we live. Faith is the thing that informs how we live. It is a decision or an orientation in our heart that affects the way that we live. And I think James is just saying, hey, let's just keep it in that category. Allow it to inform how you live. And he's trying to warn us, there might be times where you are tempted to take this whole God thing and like hold it at arm's length and try to not let it affect us. James says, don't do that. He's saying, allow that stuff that you believe about Jesus to affect you. Allow it to disrupt your life and reorient your life. And when you do that, it's beautiful. I think this is worth pointing out too. All of us in our heart of hearts, we long for what James is talking about. I don't think any of us would want or choose what James is arguing against. We all want a faith that transforms us into the true version of ourselves, don't we? James wants that for us. None of us would want a faith that we would describe as like verbal consent and nothing else. Why would we? Remember that uh, famous Protestant evangelical theological equation? Faith plus nothing equals salvation or justification. I, I think what James is trying to ask us here is, it, like what that means is that we don't add anything to our salvation, that it's all something that God accomplishes for us, and that's true. But I think the question that James is raising here is like in your heart of hearts, do you really want faith plus nothing? Like, is that what you signed up for? Like, like when you hear that there is a holy, all-powerful God who sees your heart and cares for it and loves you enough to give his life, is that something that you look at and say, you know, I'll believe in that, but I don't want it to affect me anyway? Of course not. We all long for the love of God to affect us. And James is just calling that effect good works. And he's wanting us to connect to that part of our heart that longs to be affected by God. I don't think he's trying to undermine our confidence or make us doubt our salvation. I think he's trying to inspire us to step into the thing that he knows in our heart of hearts we really long for. And I think he's telling us God longs for it too. He longs for your faith to affect you. I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, in this boat, but I, like I just sometimes I just struggle. I'll, I'll just forget what we have. You know, sometimes I, like the gospel is great, but I there's just something that will happen in my life where I just I I start trying to keep it at arm's length, and I'm like, God, just you're great. Just 
please don't affect my well-ordered life or these desires or these things that I have over here. And I start like overthinking it and I start controlling it. And I'm like, God, you're awesome. Just, would you just not mess up my things? And James is like, listen, let God mess up your thing. Whatever it is, let God mess it up. That's ultimately what you want. Like, I know we all think that we're, we're fine on our own. We don't really need it. And James is like, no, you're not. If he's real, if he really loves you, then let him mess it all up. That's what the faith is about, is letting him mess up our thing. Let it change something. Don't be passive. I think that's what he's saying is don't be a passive consumer of spiritual things and think that's what's going to satisfy your soul, because it's not. Allow the faith that we have in Jesus to change our lives. Live because of him. Don't waste your time faking it or overthinking it. Just step into what you know as best you can, like Rahab the prostitute did. Take what little you know and live it out. That's what God wants for us. That's what James wants for us. And I think part of the point of this is, isn't that what we want for ourselves? Is that it would affect us. Let me close with this. Um, I love verse 23. Um, James is talking about Abraham and faith and justification. This paragon of the faith, Abraham. Uh, And he just points out, Abraham was called a friend of God. I I love that. Um, He was known as someone who was friends with the God of the universe. Let me ask you a friendship question. Have you ever had a friend betray you? Like, I hope not. I, mean, I pray to God not. But if you've ever had a friend betray you, it really hurts. Like, have you ever had a friend be like, I love you. I, I, I dearly love you. We are dear friends. And then just treat you really badly. That is so painful. True friendship, on the other hand, is uh, like that experience where there is a consistency between what is said, I love you, and what is done, I am going to treat you kindly. I think what James is saying is as simple as this. Friendship with God is the same way. He is consistent with what he says and what he does for us, and he longs for that to also be true in the way that we love him as his friend. It's not that we have to earn our friendship with him. He freely gives it. It is total grace. He declares us his friend. But all the more, isn't that a reason to treat him as a true friend? That's what Abraham did. That's what Rahab did. I think this passage is not about worrying about having enough good works to get to heaven. um, Or, you, you know, I think it's just about friendship with God, really. At its core, if you think of yourself as a dear friend of God, what would it look like to be a true friend to him today? Don't overthink it. You don't have to earn it. Don't get caught up in that faith works justification argument. Like, what if you just assume that I put faith in God, I trust him for salvation for my soul, like I'm going to heaven. Great, check that off the list. Now, just what does it look like to love God, your friend, really well? How could you be a true friend to him? I wonder if it's possible that all this high-minded theology about justification really just boils down to that. I think our guide, James, thinks it does. I want to give you some space just to think about your relationship with God through that lens of friendship. 
Jesus, at one point, he suggested this, that there's only a couple things that he values as your friend. There's a couple things that speak love to his heart. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. And so when James talks about good works, all of the good works that God, your friend Jesus, is looking for are wrapped up in that verse. Your friendship with God flows out of those two things. And if you've come to faith in Jesus, like if you believe in your heart of hearts that he's God, that his grace and forgiveness have saved your soul, then really what James is just talking about is just, hey, how do we love him well as a friend and it's wrapped up in those two verses. I want to give you some space to reflect. We haven't done that in a while. But I just want to give you some space to think about your relationship with God through the lens of friendship. How are you doing at loving your friend Jesus? Are you who you want to be in light of his grace for you? You didn't have to earn it. But is there some effort that you want to expend to love him better? How could you show value to your friend Jesus in this season? Let me pray over you and then I'll give you some space to think. So, friend Jesus, we love you and we just ask that you would guide our thoughts. We ask that you would teach us how to value our friendship with you as much as you value your friendship with us. Would you speak to us and reveal what you ask?